Hi, listeners, and thanks for joining me. I'm your host, Paige Lenson. We're glad to have you with us. You can find this episode and more for what it's worth on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and RaymondJames.com. One important component of building a holistic financial plan is determining how you'd like your wealth distributed at the time of your passing among your loved ones and your preferred charitable causes. This already can be a complex topic for many families. It's not always easy to confront end-of-life planning, and families are full of changing dynamics that can make it a challenge to determine who you would like to receive what. But one element that can add even additional layer of sensitivity and complexity around estate planning is the presence of addiction or substance abuse among your heirs. It's not an easy topic, and it's not one with a single right answer about how you should approach your planning documents. However, it's important to understand how the inclusion or exclusion of certain provisions can help ensure that whatever you do leave to your loved ones is used to their benefit and not to their detriment. Here to talk us through this important and multifaceted topic, I'm really pleased to welcome back our featured guest, Will Lucius, Chief Trust Officer at Raymond James Trust. Will, it's good to see you. Thank you again so much for sitting down with me today. Paige, thank you for the invitation. It's nice seeing you as well. Statistically, we know that this is a relevant issue for a large number of families. Pew Research did a survey that showed about half of all American adults have said that they have a family member or a close friend who's struggled with drug abuse, let alone other forms of addiction. In your experience, is this a topic that comes up frequently among investors that you've worked with or among the industry? It is, uh, Paige. Uh, You know, in my past life, I was a practicing attorney. Uh, One of the areas that I practiced in was estate planning. So as you can imagine, uh, you know, in the confidences of uh, client consultation regarding estate planning, a a host of uh, issues come up and substance abuse among a beneficiary or beneficiaries uh, is one of those topics. Uh, As I've been with Raymond James, I also have now learned that, uh, you know, advisors uh, share uh, quite a few confidences with their clients. Uh, A lot of our advisors have clients that they've known for uh, decades, uh, multi-generations, and, uh, you know, whether it's intentional or in passing, advisors often learn uh, about family dynamics and a variety of issues as well. Uh, Not to contradict myself too much, though, um, as you can imagine, sometimes these are areas or topics that a client might conceal as well. And so it's important on the advisor or the drafting attorney to try to ferret out some of these issues as well to make sure that, you know, a client's estate plan is properly documented and drafted, you know, based on the facts as they are. Sometimes it's those most challenging topics that end up being some of the most important what have you heard are some of the, the concerns or maybe the goals of the families that bring this up for conversation? What are they hoping to achieve or, or maybe just as importantly hoping to avoid? Sure. So, you know, the goals of a client, you know, might be kind of scattershot. You know, it's really on the drafting attorney in particular to try to help uh, narrow where the focus should be when drafting a good estate plan regarding substance abuse issues. Um, you know, the goals could be, you know, a variety of things, such as um, uh, not wanting those assets that will uh, pass to the next generation to be used in a way that might enable uh, those behaviors. Uh, they might have concern that certain addictions might cause capacity issues, so the recipient might not have the ability to manage uh, their money appropriately. They might be susceptible to undue influence, uh, so they might be surrounded by people that 
do not have good intentions. Uh, so there's a concern for privacy. You know, what if account statements are in the wrong hands and using that for leverage? Uh, so again, you know, there's a variety of concerns, but it's normally on the drafting attorney to try to help, uh, you know, reduce to writing what the, the grantor is intending in, the, in that regard. What are some of the planning vehicles or documents that are part of the conversation when this topic comes up? Sure. So, you know, an estate plan as a whole is kind of just a collage of documents. You know, you have your financial power of attorney, your healthcare power of attorney, and the last will really comprises the basic estate plan. But for more complex estate plans, especially where you're dealing with these peripheral issues like substance abuse issues, that generally brings in a trust into the, into the mix of your estate plan. And a trust is a good vehicle. Uh, and where you can leave assets, and it's up to the trustee or trustees to be able to manage those assets for the benefit of the beneficiary. I would say stepping back, though, one thing that should be avoided is overly simplistic planning when it comes to substance abuse issues. And what I mean by that is disinheriting a person because of that reason, thinking that, well, we'll just, there's no planning options available, so we'll just completely ignore them. Or, you know, leaving it to another sibling or another relative with this kind of handshake deal that this person will take care of the one that's, you know, confronting those challenges. You know, those kind of overly simplistic ideas, uh, as well-intentioned as they are, uh, there's, there's better planning options that can be leveraged. You mentioned the role of the trustee. And regardless of trusts, trustee is an important role and an important component of that. In general, what are the responsibilities attributed to the trustee? Sure. So a trustee is serving in a fiduciary capacity. So they are in a very heightened, um, in a very heightened position, you know, under the eyes of the law. Uh, and a trustee is really obligated to follow the terms of the trust. You know, as I advise clients, both here at Raymond James and in my past life, the trust is just words on a page. It's just a document. It really is an instruction manual that you're leaving for the trustee to follow. And it is the trustee that's obligated to follow the terms of the trust. The trustee holds the legal title of those assets for the benefit of the beneficiary. There can be one trustee or there can be several trustees, but at the end of the day, it's the trustee's responsibility to make sure that whatever assets are in that trust are invested prudently and that they are used or distributed uh, solely for the benefit of the beneficiary according to the terms of the trust. Who chooses the trustee and who can be chosen? Sure. So who chooses the trustee is often the grantor, the person who is creating the trust. Uh, often at the trust's inception, it's the grantor who gets to select who that trustee is going to be. Now, later in the trust life cycle, it might be somebody else that has the authority to choose a trustee or remove a trustee, but at the initial onset, it's the grantor that's choosing who that person is going to be. And the trustee can be either an individual, as long as they're qualified to serve. You know, generally they have to be over 18, and there's a variety of other uh, caveats that come with it based on the state where the trust is being drafted, but it can be an individual or it can be a corporate entity like Raymond James Trust. Uh, but who that person is is really up to the grantor and what they're intending to have happen with the trust. But as I indicated, at the end of the day, it's the trustee that's really driving the train when it comes to trust administration. Does it have to be one or the other, an individual, maybe a loved one or a family member or a corporate entity? No, and that's a great question. It's not really an either-or proposition. Uh, it can either be uh, one or it can be both, and it can be a collection of people. Uh, it's not unusual that you can have a corporate trustee alongside of an individual trustee. There are other roles as well, like trust protectors, where you can name these third parties that aren't really a trustee, but they have some type of power over the trustee to do or to not do something, and they might have the power to fire the trustee if they think the trustee is not acting in the, in the beneficiary's best interest. Uh, but it really can be a collection of people, and sometimes that's advisable. You know, sometimes a corporate trustee is great, 
uh, some of those back office functions, you know, the investment management component, uh, paying the bills, um, doing the tax returns, all of that type of stuff, whereas the individual trustee is going to be better equipped to dealing with the beneficiary and their specific issues. The individual trustee sometimes can kind of serve as boots on the ground for the corporate trustee. Let's talk about some of the specific provisions that can come up when it comes to substance abuse concerns. Why would a family choose to exclude specific provisions about substance abuse in their documents? A couple reasons. One, and probably is the most obvious, is there's no underlying substance abuse issues, right? So if you are leaving your estate plan to your children, right? I have two children, Mason and Addison. If I want my estate plan to go 50-50 and I have a trust for them, they're adults, they're gainfully employed, there's no evidence of substance abuse issues, there's no you know, criminal history, um, no, nothing that would give me any pause for concern. Uh, I really don't need to have that type of language in my trust necessarily. It's, uh, it's a little bit overkill. Um, so you know, really you should draft your estate plan to match the dynamics as they are. Uh, so that's kind of the first and most obvious is there's just no issues there. So don't necessarily throw in a bunch of just-in-case yes. language if you have no reason to suspect Exactly. Some, sometimes boilerplate language like that just gets in the way, you know, if it really doesn't match up to what the facts are. On the other end of the spectrum, though, uh, again, it kind of goes back to, you know, what the beneficiary perceives when they see that in writing. You know, the... You know, in my case, with my example with Mason and Addison, if Mason has a substance abuse issue, um, you know, if that's the last document that he sees that I wrote about him, you know, I might be incentivized not to include anything for fear of what he might interpret that to be um, as my last kind of statement towards him. So, you know, on the other end of the spectrum is not wanting to include something, you know, just to preserve that family relationship. Um, and then, you know, from a practitioner standpoint, you know, there's this uh, argument, I'd say that loosely, between excluding provisions and excluding provisions when the trust is purely discretionary. And what I mean by that is uh, a discretionary trust, any distributions out of the trust is within the sole discretion of the trustee. And if the trustee already has the sole discretion to distribute or not distribute something, then presumably if the trustee is aware that there might be substance use issues uh, present, then they can exercise their trustees to simply not distribute assets, right? So adding in additional language is a little bit belt and suspenders because they already have the sole discretion on making a distribution or not. So some practitioners fall in that camp that if it's a discretionary trust, why add extra language? Because you're already vesting the trustee with that discretion to make the appropriate decision. What's the other side of that coin? Some choose to include specific yes. provisions. What are the arguments for that? So the arguments for that is really going back to what I said earlier, is that a trust is the instruction manual for the trustee to follow. And if you were selecting a trustee that might not understand the uh, challenges that the beneficiary of the trust is facing, that is really the opportunity to let the trustee know that, listen, these issues are real, this person is facing them, and we're going to need the trustee's support to help them through that when the grantor isn't there to be able to assist. So by having provisions outlined in the document, you're putting the trustee on notice that they need to be thinking about these issues. Uh, so sometimes the more that you include, the better the instructions that the trustee has to follow. And as you allude, especially if the trustee is maybe just a, a loved one, another close family member, they're likely not a substance abuse yes. professional, a healthcare professional, a mental health professional of any sort. So maybe having some guidelines that make it 
a little bit clearer, take some of that burden off of them to carry out your intentions. Absolutely. And, you know, even if it's a corporate trustee, you know, as, as good as a corporate trustee can be, um, we don't have counselors on staff. You know, we have people like myself that were former practicing attorneys and other industry professionals. But, you know, this is a unique area that requires this particular skill set. And by having provisions within the document that deal with substance use issues, you can do that very thing. You can direct the trustee to go out and retain a professional. You can empower them with the authority to go spend trust assets to go leverage uh, a counselor or a case manager or a nurse or a therapist or whatever the, the facts warrant. So a trust can, you know, can empower the trustee to do those things. And it can also shape uh, certain requirements for the trustee to follow, that if a beneficiary relapses, it can set out, you know, a time for recovery before distributions can continue, right? So if there's a relapse, you might tell the trustee that no distributions are to be made directly to the beneficiary for a period of a year or six months or two years, whatever you think, uh, you know, might be warranted. Uh, so it can really be as granular as you want. Do some of those provisions include having to define what what counts as, you know, an issue of substance abuse or what would trigger some of those guidelines to to be enacted? There is. Uh, so there is a manual, a diagnostic and statistical manual of mental health. That's a mouthful, uh, but it actually defines uh, various addictions and substance use disorders. And some drafting attorneys will actually draft in the definition of that manual into the trust to just, again, reiterate to the trustee, there is a very present issue with this particular beneficiary that the grantor is aware of. This is what it is. This is how it's defined. These are the things that you need to be looking for when interacting with the beneficiary. And I like that you pointed out, too, in your last answer that it's not just a question of, you know, turning on, yes, they're going to receive assets or no, they're not going to. It can be as granular as assets can be used for services to actually help them yes. with whatever they're struggling with. Absolutely. So, you know, if and to get to your point, but one kind of caveat to that is, you know, you can use disincentivizing techniques in a trust. So if a trust says, going back to Mason and Addison as an example, I'll pick on Addison this time, if I'm giving Addison income every month from the trust, she's entitled to income and in principal, right? Um, if the trustee has concern that there is a substance issue there, she fails a drug test or has some type of criminal activity or whatever the case might be, um, I can actually instruct the trustee to turn off those provisions and no longer send her money directly. I might be able to send it to a third party, right, to the recovery center, to the therapist, uh, whatever ancillary, you know, bills that she has coming in, but I won't send it to her anymore. So you can use those disincentivizing uh, techniques as well. When it comes to expectations for the grantor, the person setting up this trust, What's realistic to expect from a well-crafted document and where's the line between, you know, realistic expectations and maybe overly optimistic expectations about what it can or can't do? Yeah, so on the overly optimistic expectations starting there and kind of working our way back is, you know, in my experience, and this is purely anecdotal, I mean, it can vary from person to person, but normally these are issues that have been prevalent for a period of time. It's not something that just popped up within the couple of days before they, you know, execute an estate plan and then they decide they need to confront it. You know, sometimes these are years in the making. Uh, so thinking that a trustee, whether it's a corporate trustee or an individual trustee, can step in and just magically correct those issues uh, that have been kind of turning, you know, for a period of years, that's unrealistic. You know, the, the trustee is going to have to leverage on professionals 
uh, you know, and the beneficiaries resolve to over overcome some of those concerns. Uh, you know, there's there's certainly limitations to what a trustee is going to be able to achieve in terms of helping correct those behaviors. Uh, but again, you know, a trustee is held as a fiduciary and they're obligated to follow the terms of the trust. So if you have a trust that is very specific on what should happen in the event that there's one of those triggering events, then it's the burden is on the trustee to ensure that the trust is followed according to its terms and that no distributions are made if that's not permissible. Another reason to be uh, pretty particular when you make that trustee selection. It Very much like. so. Yes. Uh, yeah. Other than choosing who you want the beneficiary to be, uh, who the trustee is probably the most important decision you can make when, when drafting a, a well-tailored uh, state plan. We're so appreciative for your perspective on this topic. I want to ask you one final question for our listeners that are thinking through this. Maybe it's a topic of concern among their own family. It's a challenging one to address. What guidance do you have for them when it comes to getting started or thinking through how their plan would function given some of these concerns? Sure. First, and to circle back to what we shared at the very beginning, is you know there's nothing to be embarrassed by. Uh, be honest and be forthcoming with whoever your advisor, whoever your attorney is. You know the more that they know, the more that you empower them with the facts, the better they can create an estate plan that's going to match your wishes and what you want to have happen. You know, I, I tell clients in my past life and, and in my in my position here at Raymond James and with advisors that, you know, do something. You know, there are plenty of planning techniques out there that can overcome just about any issue. Uh, so do something. You know, these documents are designed to speak for you at a time when you can't speak for yourself. Uh, whatever happens at that time, either you have a really good estate plan or you have a really bad estate plan, but it is what it is. So, you know, I encourage people to do something nothing to be embarrassed by, um, you know, do it, draft it, leverage good professionals that know what they're doing. And once it's done, you can, you know, rest easy that you have a good estate plan and order and set it aside. Our Raymond James Trust Chief Trust Officer, Will Lucius. Will, thank you again for your time today. We really appreciate this conversation. Thank you, Paige. Listeners, thanks for joining us. You can find more episodes on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, so be sure to subscribe. For what it's worth, I'll see you next time.